Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende, chapters 7 through 14, and pairing it with contemporary reads that feature similar themes. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I am really excited to talk about part two of this book today because I got so much out of our part one discussion, but also it was hard to limit ourselves to just talking about part one. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, we love talking themes. It's going to be delightful to dig into that, but just with the nature of the way this book is written, we couldn't help but start to creep into part two territory a little bit on the last episode, um, talking about specific characters and some events. So it will be fun to wrap up. And of course, one of our favorite things is to pair our contemporary reads. So we're ready for some recommendations and I'm excited. All right. Well, Let's just kind of dive in. So today we will be talking about themes that are evident throughout the whole novel and kind of our our overall experience of being with these characters for so many pages. But we went through some of the more prominent characters in our part one episode, but we left off with Alba because she doesn't make an appearance until, well, She does because she's the narrator. So she makes an appearance (laughs) from the first sentence. But we don't really meet her as a character until the second half of of the book. So let's let's chat a little bit about Alba as a character and a narrator. So she is Blanca's daughter. She is Esteban Trueba's granddaughter. And she has a really special relationship with him. They are just completely endeared to one another. And he just like treats Alba so much better than his own, you know, his his own daughter and and his all the other women in his life. Basically, he just like has this tender spot for Alba. But Alba is like her mom. And she's got this rebellious streak and she wants to, um, I don't know, she she gets involved with a revolutionary. And it is really through Alba that we start to see Esteban question his life choices, start to reflect on his past, start to regret being violent, start to rethink his political alignment. And their relationship is really a beautiful picture of the way that relationships can change people and can change people's minds. So as far as the second half of the book goes, it's not just focused on Alba, but I mean, especially towards the end, the focus is very much on her. Yeah, she does kind of shift or maybe, you know, as as other characters either pass away or move or, you know, just in some ways exit the novel, we kind of get distilled down to this being Alba's story at the end. 
of course, it's still the Truva family's story, but she becomes really that central focus, as you said, especially in those last two chapters or the the chapter 14 and then the, the epilogue. Um, and she is, she's a great character, really, really, I think, interesting character as she is, you know, the, she's the child of Blanca and Pedro, although she doesn't know. She thinks for most of her life that her father is Jean, her, her mother's husband, who her mother tells her has, has died. (laughs) Uh, We didn't really touch on him. He has some interesting proclivities that we don't fully get to understand. Yeah. But Blanca basically marries him because she's she's pregnant and she her her daughter will need a name, somebody's name. That's a really important theme of of this book. Um, we see the the lack of a family name causing a lot of trouble for other characters in this book. So uh, but Alba is that the like, product of of the kind of great love story of of the book and people from two very different worlds and that makes her i think almost symbolically important as much as she is important as a character and narrator i mean i think we'll get into talking about the very end of the book but her experiences are tough to read and um all of the women in this novel have traumatic experiences, but particularly Alba, I think, experiences the most trauma out of between her grandmother, her mother, and herself. And we were, I was talking about uh, her relationship with Esteban, her grandfather, before. It's really through her trauma that he realizes what a bad guy he is. Um, I don't, I mean, it, it is what it is. I don't love that as like a, well, think of your daughter kind of situation, but that kind of is is what what's on the page here. I agree. I don't, I don't love that thematically. I don't love that as, as where these characters lives go i i do think that while that is esteban's reality as we see it on the the page that's not alba's purpose as a character in the novel so i i think that you know that helps add to the the complexity and and we know as readers i think even the the novel knows that like it's not fair or right or good that it took that for Esteban to start questioning his his choices and his violent behaviors of the past. But that doesn't make it not true for the character as he is. It, it makes sense for his character, even mm-hmm. though I completely agree that it, I don't don't love it. So let's talk a little bit about what gets her to that point and what gets Esteban to that point. So Alba has this romance with Miguel, who is a revolutionary, and that shapes a lot of her experiences. So what did you think of that relationship? What do you think of Miguel as a character? 
I have to say that the men in this book are treated very much like side characters aside from Esteban. Um, but we do get to see them through, through their lover's eyes, basically. Mm-hmm. So through Alba, we get to see this picture of Miguel and we get to see what their relationship is like. So what did you think of those two? I liked, I liked Miguel. I liked that we get to see him as a child because we meet his older sister, Amanda, earlier in, in the story. And so we kind of see him as um, as the Trueba family becomes interconnected with, with Amanda. And, and they, Amanda and Miguel, lead a very different life than the Trueba family. They're, they live in poverty. And so we don't see him kind of becoming that revolutionary, but we saw the seeds of it from his childhood, which I think is a really interesting way that she's constructed the novel. I I like that there that Alba and Miguel's relationship is kind of it's fueled in some ways by their fiery revolutionary beliefs. But Miguel, they, but their but their political beliefs are still different, and Miguel is, of course, much more heavily involved in in the revolution. Alba gets involved politically because she's so infatuated with him, but her heart, I think, lies more along the lines of where her grandmother Clara's did, and being more of a teacher and educator and someone who who helped people in a more interpersonal way, providing what she could for them, whether that was right, food or education or, or anything like that, rather than the political realm. So I thought that was a really nice kind of foundational component to their relationship, that they could have similar visions for what they wanted the world to be, but different ways that they went about trying to secure that. It does seem like throughout the novel, there is a very gendered sense of the way that the men get things done versus the way that the women get things done. So we see Esteban, he gets his way through violence. He gets his way through anger. He gets his way through fear. We see Miguel as a revolutionary. He has his own way of operating in the world and his way of getting what he wants. And then we see Characters like Clara, Blanca, Alba, they have this more feminine, quiet, gentle way of moving about in the world and creating change. And so I wonder if Ayanda is trying to say something about the role that women play in in politics and in revolution and that you don't necessarily have to be on the, you don't have to be a Mariposa. You don't have to be one of Julia Alvarez's um, main characters in, in the time of the butterflies, but that there can be that sort of gentle guiding, nurturing component to a movement. I think that that is certainly a theme that this book is, is touching on and is fascinating because we really, I will say like the only characters that stand up to me as sort of characters who are breaking gender norms are Jaime and Nicolas because they are 
And what they're doing is they're caring for the poor. They are giving them medical care. They're sort of following their hearts. There is more of an effeminate air to them. And they're really following their mother's path of how to take care of people and how to, um, I don't know if create equality is the right word, but like I said, just how to take care of people and how to cross class lines. It just, a lot of it feels very gendered in the book. I I kind of love that. I mean, not that I wouldn't love to see a version of the story where Alba is the great revolutionary and that would be really fun fun to read. But I I think there is something subversive about rather than showing a single female character take on these quote unquote masculine traits in order to be a leader in order to be effective to instead celebrate the stereotypically feminine qualities and show how there's power in them. And I think your point about the two characters kind of crossing gender binaries and boundaries being Jaime and Nicolas reveal something about what Allende is saying about gender. We don't really have examples of our female characters taking on those more masculine roles, but we do celebrate these two male characters who seem to be both more in touch with some of those traditionally feminine traits and like very connected to the women in in their lives and valuing the women in their lives roles as teachers and mentors to them. And interestingly, Miguel's older sister, Amanda, is really closely tied to Jaime and Nicolas. And there's this whole subplot that they're all involved with and the way that they help Amanda. It's part of that constantly circling back and everyone being interrelated and interconnected Mm -hmm. in this novel that, that happens and that gets revealed. And so we can see that, you know, Miguel is also a product of that that care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I liked that. I I agree that I really like Jaime and Nicolas and how different they are, but not in necessarily the way you would expect someone to set up sort of <laughs> contrary characters. Um, I like their love triangle with Amanda, but how... <sighs> It doesn't really ever culminate, but they all remain in in relationship with each other, if not romantic relationship, because so much of this book revolves around those sweeping epic love stories that are not only love at first sight, but love at first sight and you're three years old and then destined to be <laughs> together forever. And so I, I thought it was a nice inclusion to show a relationship that two relationships really that, that, that end, but remain important and significant to the characters involved. So in part one, you mentioned discussing a character who is a poet and tying that in. And so I want to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, I remember being, confused about the poet when I first read this 
And I still don't know that I have an answer. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there is an answer and I just didn't do the research. Um, but for my first read, the, the poet, the revolutionary poet who kind of, um, he doesn't have a name. He, um, he writes poets that not necessarily fuel the revolution, but the revolutionaries are inspired by and moved by. And he's always kind of on the run or in hiding from from the government. Um, I thought he was Pedro, Blanca's Pedro, the first time I read this. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is not. <laughs> so that confused me at first. And then I wondered if he's supposed to be an allusion to Pablo Neruda, um, mm. the great Chilean poet. Um, I don't know what were your thoughts on with listening to the audio i i definitely thought he was pedro for a while too okay i'm um, glad i'm not the only one who no that. i think and I, I think that that's well hinted at okay yeah um but i really didn't make the pablo neruda connection until i revisited the epigraph and then it was like oh well this is obvious you know he's obviously an important poet to Allende. But I didn't make that connection until then. And I I haven't read enough of Neruda's work to be able to say like, oh, well, I can see the crossing themes here. Or um, it, I haven't read enough of him or researched enough of his history to say what specific details related to him. But I just think placing a poet as a revolutionary in general in a book where writing is really important educating and learning to write is important for all of the characters clara keeping these journals of everything that happens in her family is really important important writing letters to one another all of writing is important here and just having a character who is a poet and spurring on revolutionary ideas is saying something about the act of writing mm-hmm. I love I love that I yeah I think I mean I think it's very possible it is an allusion to Neruda he was very political and in exile from Chile for parts of his life but I also love if that is the case I mean I think Neruda is almost most famous for his love poems and he writes like such beautiful, swoon-worthy love poems. And so I think if we make that connection, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, yes, the poet is Neruda, but I think because of the epigraph and because of the ref- reference to the poet, we can wonder that. And in just wondering that, I think it also ties romance and epic love stories to revolution and being something rebellious and I, I, we certainly see that with with the characters I mean in some ways right we talked about in the first episode in our episode on part one how cause and effect in this book is very important but also complicated and web-like but it's like 
Blanca and Pedro's love story is one of the sort of seedlings of at least certain characters being involved in revolution. So it was that love that led to that. So I think all of that might be there with the inclusion of of the poet. And I think just the, like you said, the idea that that words and language and storytelling are so important to revolution is key to this book. And something that I think is very, very true if you study the history of revolutions. (laughs) So I love that. (laughs) Uh, I'll read the epigraph again so that we can talk a little bit about it. From Pablo Neruda. How much does a man live after all? Does he live a thousand days or one only? For a week or for several centuries? How long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever? Okay, can I... I didn't look at this when we recorded part one, but... Yeah. My epigraph is different. (gasps) Yeah. Well, it's What's the, yours. It's the same lines, but it is abridged. <laughs> Mine only says, "How long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever?" Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So, the version that I have, let me see when this was published or the date from the 1990s, 1993. And mine's from 2015. So I wonder if that was a choice she made or if the publishers just cut it. Wow. I have. Yeah, I have to wonder. When was the first one? Okay, so let me see. It says, grateful acknowledgement is made to Delacorte Press for permission to reprint an excerpt from the book Selected Poems by Pablo Neruda, translated. I wonder if it was... Maybe just a copyright issue that they didn't want the whole thing included, That too. could be, yeah. But 1982 is when this book first came out. So this version, this is, you know, the 1993, that's 10 years, 10-ish years later. But the 2015 version, I mean, yeah, that definitely, that's, that's a big difference in it's an epigraph, It's a huge difference, though. yeah. Especially because I actually really like the first few lines. I like the lines. first few lines, too. And I think they make more sense with the novel. Oh, my goodness. So, okay, well, let's connect it to some themes here. (laughs) How much does a man live after all? Does he live a thousand days or one only? For a week or for several centuries? How long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever? That, That first part I really do find fascinating. Because I think, especially if we think of Esteban as the man that this Mm -hmm. might be referring Mm -hmm. to. And if maybe thinking about, you know, do we think about his one life all-encompassing or can we separate it into specific chunks and eras and like this was the Esteban who was really violent and was a rapist versus this is the Esteban who loves his granddaughter and changed his mind and is also a revolutionary now. Like, what? How how many lives do we give him? Um, and is who you are 
the person you end up as or is it all of the people you were along the way? Yeah. Yeah. Are you defined by one moment? Is he defined by um, the younger Esteban who was born um, out of rape and wedlock? You know, what defines you? And then, I mean, that last part, certainly how long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever? That's a little trickier to connect to the rest of the novel. Like I can see the the poem excerpt as a mm-hmm. whole sort of interconnected across what Iandi is exploring here. Right, but just, but those, just two those two lines. lines, not really. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think that I I it's interesting because when I just see how long does man spend dying, what does it mean to say forever? I feel like I connect those more almost with Clara, who had such a beautiful relationship with death where she she wasn't afraid of it for herself or or for others and therefore she didn't spend a lot of time dying she met death kind of bravely when she was when she was ready and had you know a a broader sense of what the interconnection between life and death were. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating because without those other lines, I think those, the themes that Clara brings up are the ones that come to mind more with this epigraph versus with the additional lines that you have. I do think more of Esteban, his journey, where he kind of, the person he became versus the person he was along the way. Hmm. I think, I mean, how long does a man spend dying? Of course, it's poetry. We don't have to take it literally. So if we're referencing, you know, the death of one's identity or like the death and rebirth in terms of, you know, changing who you are, how long does a man spend dying? Like how long does a, does a man spend in that that phase of going into a new life. Um, yeah. What does it mean to say forever? I, I have to connect this to Esteban, but it, it is fun to speculate and guess about. Anytime there's sort of a theme of storytelling as well and storytelling in language as a way of not not staving off death, but letting your story continue after, after death. I can see connections of, of this here, right? That, you know, Esteban's story, because it does start to feel like his story at the end. Yeah. Um, is, is ongoing, right? He's like in this perpetual state of change, almost forever because it's captured mm-hmm. in the pages of this book. Yeah. And Alba is the storyteller, right? She's the one who wants him to go on living forever and thus captures his story in writing and captures the legacy of her family. Yeah. It's fascinating. I really, I love, I love taking a look at epigraphs and titles. I think mm-hmm. the house of the spirits is a really fascinating title because I mean it certainly can refer to the house on the corner that they built. Mm-hmm. 
but it could just be talking about the family. Mm-hmm. The House of the Spirits is the, I mean, it's the book, mm-hmm. right? It's this book that is holding the spirits of this whole family that are living and being brought up again and um, digging up history and, and being released. And I think even the whole nameless country that mm-hmm. is also kind of in that cycle um, cycle of, of revolution where ideas are buried and then reemerge and yeah, there are so many layers to to this title. I was just going to ask if there are any other, if there are any major scenes from the second half that you want to talk about before we go into prominent themes of the book mm. or events. I mean, I I really I love that Blanca and Pedro get to run away together. Yeah. And that Esteban facilitates that. And once again, I don't think the book suggests that that makes up for everything he's done. But I I like that he does something for Blanca after mm-hmm. treating her so, so horribly. And treating her horribly because of her relationship with Pedro. For him to be helpful in facilitating their their flee to to Canada is is really lovely. And yeah, it doesn't make me think that Esteban all of a sudden is great, but I I still I like that for Blanca. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's a nice um like a little antidote to the harshness of the events in this second part, yes. the imprisonment um, the torture of the women in this novel just to have to have one get a happy happy ever after is is really satisfying mm-hmm. yeah because the the last chapters with Alba are really hard mm-hmm. um and the fact I mean the fact Esteban actually is is warned that he should send Alba away and he doesn't and she's she's captured imprisoned and and tortured both for political reasons but there's also a personal reason this is where we see the reemergence of Esteban Garcia who is Esteban Trueba's grandson of the first in the lineage coming from the first woman Esteban Trueba raped and Esteban Garcia is seeking revenge and is really a a quite villainous character in how he how he treats Alba and how he has mm-hmm. this really gross despicable attraction to her even when she's a child but um, also desire to use her as a vehicle for his vengeance against her grandfather. So he's one of the guards in the prison where she's kept. So the, you know, the brutality I think is intensified because it's so personal to, to him. Um, and 
I, I feel like that's just such an interesting full circle that we get because I think we can at least touch on like understanding Esteban Garcia's anger, even while like vehemently, of course, rejecting his his violence. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that he sort of supplants his father as the villain. So it's almost like um, Esteban Trueba. I don't know that. I mean, I think his actions are certainly villainous. He's not necessarily positioned as the villain of the novel, but it's pretty close for the first half of the book. Yeah, I, I think he's an antagonist to our three women mm-hmm. protagonists, if not a, a fully conceived villain. Yeah, and then to have Esteban Garcia come in and be villain to the core, it does help in the softening of Trueba. That's a good it, point. <laughs> yeah. It certainly offers the contrast and and helps in the the softening and helps in as we're sort of like reimagining who this character is and as he's figuring out how he's changing this this villain, this contrast is pretty stark. It towards the end, I mean, I it really put me in mind of a telenovela mm-hmm. and um the form, which is traditionally a Latin American format. Um and a format that I'm more familiar with from my reading and from my viewing than I than I am with magical realism in Latin American literature. Um, but just sort of the bringing a character back, but now they're a villain. Bringing a character back, but now they're good. And um, sort of the having to just like go along with the narrator and believe it. It really reminded me of of telenovela form and storytelling and sort of just accepting some of those changes and accepting like, oh, of course this person has a twin that came, that is, <laughs> is evil and is contrasting them. And just sort of going along with it for the sake of being entertained by the story and for the sake of, of having a different character arc and the change doesn't necessarily have to be understandable, which I think is a lot of where we're, where we get Esteban Treba is sort of like all of a sudden we're supposed all of a sudden we're supposed to root for him or mm-hmm. all of a sudden we're supposed to be empathetic towards him. Yeah. It is it is really interesting. I think, you know, the the book exists in this manner where when the characters aren't on the page, we're not even really supposed to be wondering what they're doing. Even yeah. main characters like Jaime and Nicolas, like when they're up they're at boarding school. You Who know. cares? Yeah. <laughs> then they come back. They're there. <laughs> and they're there. And we accept who they are now. Um, so it is, it's it's a really interesting storytelling strategy. And I also like I I think I keep coming back to in my own mind that this book is told because it's told through Alba and Esteban Trueba's perspectives mm-hmm. like we're seeing the characters as they see them which is not to say like oh maybe 
maybe Esteban Garcia was an okay guy right. and they're just painting. But <laughs> but that's some of that like exaggerated storytelling. Um, it, it Who's to say if it is exaggerated? But there might be some of that too because of who we have as our narrators. Yeah. And at the core of Esteban Garcia and his sort of revenge plots and his anger towards his father, I mean, if we really go back and we're like, why is this guy so angry? It, it, a lot of it has to do with class and the way he was raised and his anger at his father for never acknowledging him. Like you said before, names are really important. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have his father's name. But he has his first. His first name. name which, <laughs> yeah, just adds. Yeah. Adds which is like pain. a mockery. Right, yeah. exactly. And I, I think... Again, I I think that I like the level of complexity and nuance that Allende has for these characters where, you know, she has this pure villain who does have a sympathetic backstory, right? Mm -hmm. Which doesn't mean that we sympathize with anything he does when we see him on the page and acting as an adult. But, But both of those things can be true at the same time, just as with Esteban Truebo. We can root for what he's trying to do at the end of his life with his family while still like holding him accountable and and knowing mm-hmm. that what he did in his youth was was atrocious. So we get, in addition to the sort of um, class struggle we get towards the end where it's really clear in the politics that we have this struggle throughout the whole entire novel. We see the class struggle in the romances, mm-hmm. especially Blanca and Pedro. And I think it's it's interesting how the romances, you know, somewhat parallel that class struggle and parallel the political struggle. But it all just sort of builds to that point. Just like you build romantic tension, there's like this tension building through the novel that leads to the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, I think the sort of uh, there's passion in both, right? There's passion in a romance. There's passion in a revolution. I think that those seem like such contrasting ideas because we think of romance as being like soft and lovely and gentle and revolution as being violent and clashing. And I think that, you know, they're so interwoven in this book and many books like this one. Um I don't know. It's just, it's another aspect and theme that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like that slow build and I like the, um, I like the way, I think this is what you're touching on a little bit as well, that she is consistently exploring certain themes like class, passion, romance, revolution, and yet there's no like there there and there's a constant build but there's barely like a climax and there's there's all of these tangents where you think she might be going in a completely different thematic direction and then she circles back kind of to this to this core and it just feels you know messy and complicated in a good way where you don't at least for me, I don't feel like I leave the book thinking like, okay, she's saying that 
romantic love, you know, conquers everything or family love. Like just there's not like a clean way to summarize the theme in a single sentence for me. I like that, especially if a book is going to be this long and have this many characters. <laughs> I, I I like that it just feels um, not not murky, just layered. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking theme, we're not really necessarily talking like what's the message mm-hmm. of the book, um, but just, you know, what are some of these thematic elements that she is tackling? Mm-hmm. Um we talked about the theme of storytelling and writing. There's so much that can be said about the way Ayande handles that throughout the whole entire novel. The theme of the class struggle and the theme of revolution, all of that. Yeah, there maybe it's it's more accurate to talk about the many, many motifs and symbols mm, in this mm-hmm. book, but there isn't necessarily, she isn't, it doesn't seem like she's putting forth a certain message. Yeah. And, and- I I like that it, it seems like that matches the book, which as we mm-hmm. talked about so much in part one, just feels like a very natural form of of storytelling where she's she's moving from point A to point B, but it's not linear and it's not with like a didactic intention. Well, Speaking of themes, <laughs> I think we should probably get into our pairings because we could certainly talk about this book and talk about the second half and all of it together for a long time because it's a long book. And we will. We will keep talking about it over on Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings for that. But we should talk about our pairings. Do you feel like you went for thematic pairings this time or format pairings there's so many ways to go about pairing books with the house of the spirits Mm -hmm. i have a little bit of both i really wanted to get some good magical realism in here but i yeah i wanted to to kind of share a book or two that seemed to be doing something similar with themes of family or questions of family and identity. So yeah, my, uh, my pairings, I think all work well with this one, but sometimes the pairings all pair with each other too. And I wouldn't say that's (laughs) the case this time around. (laughs) How about you? Oh gosh. Yeah. I went for, you know, sweeping stories, multiple characters, unique storytelling, gotta have a hint of magic there's just there's so much to work with but Mm -hmm. I'm excited I'm excited to hear so what is your first pairing Sarah so my first one I think is like the most perfectly in line pairing and I have to give credit Maddie she is one of our classics club patrons she recommended the murmur of bees by Sophia Segovia to me she might have even mentioned it like in talking about the house of the spirits. I can't quite remember, but that seems right to me. And so I read it thinking it could be a good pairing. And it's like, it's so perfect. If you loved the house of the spirits, you have to pick up the murmur of bees. So I'm just going to give like the briefest of setups because I I think and we never said this, but I feel like at least my back cover of the House of the Spirits gives way, way, way too much <laughs> away. 
And I think with books like this, it's better to just go on for the ride. So I'll give a, a brief, brief set of it. So um, this book was also first written in Spanish and translated to English. It's set in a small village in Mexico in the early 20th century. So kind of leading up to and then during both the Mexican Revolution and the Spanish flu of 1918. So that was really interesting to read right now as well. It is about a baby who is found at the very beginning of the novel by an an old woman who never leaves her rocking chair, but she heard this baby calling to her and she gets up and she goes and she is found kind of holding this baby. And when people look at him, they're, they think that he is, quote, kissed by the devil. He has a cleft palate. We learn from our like contemporary vocabulary. And he is also covered head to toe in bees who are not hurting him. They are this child's protector. And so Nana Reha, she insists on bringing this baby home. He's kind of adopted by the wealthy family who she was a servant for for many years. And so he he grows up uh, part of this family, but not quite fully a family member. And he's followed everywhere he goes by his protective bees. And he, through kind of a, a magic that's not fully explained, has the ability to commune with these bees. They protect him. And he can kind of also, like Clara, see the future and is able to protect his his family from much of what is to come. It is so, so good. I really loved this book. The translation, I can't speak to the um, original Spanish, but the translation is absolutely lovely. The The writing just really was incredibly striking. I would say maybe more so to me than the House of the Spirits was just on a sentence level, like really just being blown away by the way she described certain things or the way she she worded themes. It's a family saga. It's set during a revolution. There are lots of themes of class and gender. Of course, there's the magical realism component. This book even alternates between a third-person narrator and a first-person narrator. So it is just so in line with The House of the Spirits. I would be surprised if Sophia Segovia wasn't intending that in many ways, just because of how how in line it was. Um, so yeah, I, I thought this book was absolutely lovely. And basically every person I have mentioned it to who has read it, it's like, oh, I love that book so much. I wish more people would read it. So I, I think if you're looking for a sweeping family saga, for the summer, the murmur of bees is fantastic. It's another book in translation, as I mentioned. I will say I think it was easier to follow than the House of the Spirits, and the chapters are super short in contrast to the House of the Spirits, so also easier to pick up and put down, even though it's also pretty long. So that's the murmur of bees by Sophia Segovia. Oh, that sounds really good. I I think you would really like this one, but you might want to like 
give yourself a little yeah, break breather. It's so similar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. What's your first book? My first pairing is Latitudes of Longing by Shubangi Swarup. And this one, I I wouldn't say is necessarily a thematic pairing. It's set in a completely different part of the world. It is set in India, but there are lots of different characters. It is sweeping. And there's this theme of interconnectedness that I think really ties into the house of the spirits. So described as sweeping and lyrical, this is a debut novel and it follows these interconnected characters, but it's set all across India. So we have an island setting. We have like the snowy desert of India and it's telling this epic love story, but through all of these interconnected characters. So there's a scientist, there's a clairvoyant, there's a geologist, there are octogenarian lovers, there is a mother, there's a yeti, there's a turtle, like so many characters, right? But all of these characters and their sort of magical elements are connected to one another. And so although this isn't necessarily about like one genealogy, like this isn't just about one family tree. Um, We're not following the genealogy of one single family, but just that web, like we said with the House of the Spirits of interconnected characters and cause and effect in a unique way really sounds like this, it makes this an excellent pairing. And just the storytelling here, like I said, it is lyrical. If that, if the word lyrical writing turns you off, then this book is not for you. But if you are someone who really likes to stop and admire some lengthy sentences, some vivid descriptions, some of that sort of more flowery writing, this is is definitely for you. It's it's beautifully written, um, but it's just that interconnectedness. It's the multiple characters. It's the sweeping setting that I think makes it pair with the House of the Spirits. Not necessarily out of geography or um, not necessarily out of the same themes, um, but just a somewhat similar style and just uh, maybe a similar reading experience where you have to let yourself just be swept away by it because that's what it's intending to to do is sweep you away and just let you admire the interconnectedness of, of a life in all things. Mm. I'm going to have to check that one out. That sounds good. It does sound like a Sarah book. <laughs> <laughs> all right. My next one is not sweeping in scope, although it is still a family saga, I would say, because we learn so much about this family. So my next pairing is Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. I've talked about this, I think, a couple of times on the podcast already, maybe as a upcoming release I was excited about and then maybe a favorite then. And I, I really enjoyed this one. It's a slim novel. And so 
I, I think less than 200 pages. It, it reads really, really quickly, but it manages to do so much. So the book primarily follows Talia, who's a teenage girl. She is in a juvenile detention facility in Colombia at the beginning of the novel. For we we come to learn why she's there and how out of character her, the act that got her there was, but how much kind of passion she holds in her for for justice and and rightness, which I think Talia is um she's more fiery than any of the women in the House of the Spirits, but I can definitely see some connections between her and them. So she manages to escape this facility and she's trying to get to the capital to the airport so she can fly to the U.S. where her her mother and her siblings live. She has U.S. citizenship because she was actually born in the U.S., but she has been living in Colombia with her father, who was deported when she was a baby. And so she does not, she hasn't lived with her her mother and, and siblings for her whole life. But now she needs to, to get back to them. I thought that the story was really going to follow Talia's journey, and it it does, but it really is, is as much about her parents, their love story, which also crossed class divides, how they ended up in the U.S. together, how they ended up being broken apart, what that did to the family, what that did to their senses of selves, their sense of, of where they belonged, what culture they wanted to, to immerse themselves in and be, be a part of how they wanted to raise their children. All of that is explored in this really short book. There's no magical realism in this book. But there is an importance of folk tales and other stories that involve magic and um, kind of mythical creatures. And so the characters tell each other those stories, even though that's not part of their lived reality, which is, is a really lovely inclusion here. And while this book explores class, it also very much focuses more even on, on race in a more explicit way than the House of the Spirits and on borders, which is, I think, very different from the House of the Spirits, which it exists in a unnamed country, right? So we don't even we don't even learn the nationality of any characters. Nationality in infinite country is is very prevalent, but I think it's asking similar questions as House of the Spirits does about class and the way it divides us in this arbitrary way. So I, I thought this book was really beautiful. It also has like a really beautiful father-daughter relationship without all of the baggage of the grandfather-granddaughter relationship of Esteban and Alba. And so I loved seeing that depicted as well. So if you are looking for a, a book that is set in Latin America that explores similar themes but is much shorter and a much quicker read infinite country by patricia angle would be a good one to pick up okay i have another debut which i didn't realize that i had a couple debuts on here and that makes sense it's house of the spirits is Allende's debut novel so i like that little connection but 
This one is a novel in translation. It is Earth Eater by Dolores Race, and it is translated by Julia Sanchez. And so this one is set in Argentina in an unnamed slum, but um, in a couple of reviews that I've read, they cited Buenos Aires. So this is a contemporary setting. And so Earth Eater refers to our main character, a young woman who finds herself compelled to eat dirt. So she is literally eating earth. And when she eats the dirt, she gets visions of people who are buried, missing, dead, like just these really horrible visceral visions of lost lives and murders. So the first time that she eats dirt, she learns the truth about her mother's death. And then obviously she's like really disturbed, but um, soon word gets out about her ability to do this. And people who are really anxious to find out what happened to their loved ones who were maybe disappeared by the government or who were violently murdered and it was covered up, they start to come to her and request her to use her gift. So um, I took a look. The dedication references victims of femicide. Um, The author is very specific and clear about that's what she's writing about. She is, is writing about femicide in Argentina and women dying and people not knowing what happened to them and knowing the truth. So this magical realism, I would say this book is on the darker side of the House of the Spirits, but in the House of the Spirits, we do see violence against women. We do see how women are impacted. Um, we we see murder and, and rape and women being the targets of certain crimes. And so Earth Eater is this darker, but still very feminist book that focuses on women at the center um, and telling the stories of their pain and exposing and telling the truth. So I think that um, it just, it fits in with the House of the Spirits. But like I said, it is darker. Uh, it is it is gritty and, and obviously talks about some content warning worthy topics. So that is Earth Eater by Dolores Race, translated by Julia Sanchez. And it's fairly new. It just came out in 2019, debut novel. All right. My last one is also on the darker side. Um, I am pairing The Dangers of Smoking in Bed by Mariana Enriquez. And this is a collection of short stories. It's also a work in translation. The translation is Megan McDowell. And this book has been nominated for the Booker International Prize as well. I read it with a group of Fiction Matters patrons And I would say if you want to pick up The Dangers of Smoking in Bed, definitely find someone to read it with you because these short stories are so (laughs) complicated 
or they're just so layered and allegorical that you'll want to talk about them. You'll want to figure out what did that ghost baby mean in this story? So these are works of of fiction that I would say are, some of them are magical realism, but many of them verge, maybe not just verge, are, are, are actually horror. So there are a lot of dark, dark things in here as well. So the stories range widely, but they all have an element of something mystical, something magical, something horrific. Um, There is a story about a woman who has a ghost of a baby following her around. She has no idea what it wants from her. There is a woman who becomes obsessed with the physicality of the human heart in a that in a way that drives her to do absolutely cringy horrific things. What I loved about this book is it it was using all of those allegorical allegorical components, horror tropes, magical realism to explore uh, class and gender and like the I think the after effects of trauma as well. And I think, you know, Allende, she she includes so much trauma in her book, but there's not a ton of grappling with it, right? Or um, even processing of it because the tone is just so matter of fact. And, and this book is like the other extreme, using those same magical realism tropes. Enriquez is Argentinian, so she's working in that Latin American tradition. Um, But to really explore in ways I have not seen before pain and tragedy and, and trauma. I felt like this book was like so out of my comfort zone, but I am really glad that I I read it. And it also, I mean, I, I it's very, very dark, but she also is quite playful at times in the way she uses tropes. Some things are like so uncomfortably cringy that they're they're verging into funny. And so it's not just a one-note like story collection at all. There's a ton that she's doing there. And so I, I think if if you're interested in magical realism and some of the the writers who are working in this tradition, expanding this tradition, playing with this tradition in a very modern way and being celebrated for that, then Mariana Enriquez is for sure an author to check out. And I I think The Dangers of Smoking in Bed, her short story collection would be a great place to start. I remember reading uh, her one of her other short story collections. Maybe it was her first one, Things We Lost in the Fire. Mm-hmm. And be it was very creepy. It's very <laughs> creepy, very disturbing. Yes, absolutely. And if if like you know, knowing that a book is going to be creepy and disturbing is just a no for you. That is totally fine. This mm-hmm. one, this is not the book I would say. Oh, dip your toes in and just see if yeah. it works for you. Um, this is like fully going there. Um, and 
if you it, it is nice that it's short stories because you can read one and be like, mm-hmm. I think I'll give this a pass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or, oh, I'm so curious. I want more. But I do recommend reading it with a with a friend or a group, because I think if you just just read them and you're just like, wow, this is creepy and disturbing. That's that would be the level I would have stayed at probably if I didn't have this mm-hmm. group of other readers to talk about and start thinking like, oh, I really see what she was doing there with this symbolism or with with this connection to um, storytelling tradition. So that would be my my recommendation there. My last recommendation goes towards the lighter side. Oh, so perfect. if people <laughs> if people need something that is a little bit lighter than a few of our picks here and and that is a little bit more of an easy read. I have a YA novel to recommend. So this is The Girl Who Could Silence the Wind by Meg Medina. And Meg Medina is a really well-known YA author. Um, a couple of books that you might know her by Burn Baby Burn is one of hers. Really great book. Um, and Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass. That's another one that's more recent. So she she writes a lot of middle grade and YA. So The Girl Who Could Silence the Wind is about a 16-year-old girl named Sonia. And she's born on the night of a horrible storm. But then when the wind stops and the storm dies down, everyone around her starts to sort of believe that she has these powers. So all growing up for her whole coming of age experience, she has people coming to her to ask her to pray, to heal people, to um, make requests because they believe that she has this special power, but she knows she doesn't. Sonia knows she can't just pray and get her way or she can't lay hands on people and, and heal them. So she doesn't want to disappoint anyone, but she knows that this power isn't isn't real. So this isn't a magical realism book, but there is this hint of magic and there is sort of like this hint at people believing in, in the possibility. So Sonia, she just feels really guilty because all of these people are making requests of her and she can't, she doesn't want to turn them away and disappoint them, but she also knows that she can't do anything about it. Um, So she feels really guilty and she gets the chance to go away from home, gets to travel to the city, gets to live with this wealthy woman. And she just feels like, okay, now I can be free. But then she gets some devastating news and she basically learns that she can't just leave her family and leave her past behind. There's a little bit of romance in here. It's a coming of age story. It's a story about, you know, a strong heroine finding her way in the world. And so I think all of those things lend itself well to be paired with the House of the Spirits. Or even, you know, it might have paired well within the time of the butterflies as well, which I think I'm glad that we read. Um, Alvarez's work so close to Allende's just because I found so many connections between them. But um, yeah, I just, I think Meg Medina is a great um, Latinx author to pick up. 
And this one could be a slightly lighter pairing for the House of the Spirits. The House of the Spirits, we didn't really talk about this much. I don't know that it's one that I would bring into the classroom just because it is so complicated and there are so many content warnings. But books like The Girl Who Could Silence the Wind, um, some other YA, there are lots of YA examples that I would recommend. So The Girl Who Could Silence the Wind by Meg Medina offers just a little bit of a lighter YA touch. I like that. And I'm glad we have a wide range of tones on this in our pairings because (laughs) this type of story, I just feel like could go in so many different directions. And so I'm glad we have a balance of authors who are exploring these ideas and tropes in very different ways. Agreed. So Sarah, just to wrap up part two, do you have a pick of the week? Yeah. Okay. This is going to sound weird, but I'm recommending the new Amy Tan documentary. It's called Amy Tan Unintended Memoir. And it's a PBS documentary, but it's now available on Netflix. So it's super easy to watch. The obvious connection here is Isabel Allende is interviewed throughout the the documentary. She's a big fan of Amy Tan's work. And it's really interesting to hear her talk about how she sees her own books and Tan's being like working towards similar goals and doing similar things. But I will also say that the documentary itself and the way it explores Amy Tan's relationship with her mother and some hard, abusive things and then storytelling as a means of forgiveness. So so Amy Tan, you know, she she sat and spoke with her mom for hours and hours and hours while she was writing many of her books and learned her stories and kind of wrote her stories as a process of healing really reminds me of the construction of the House of the Spirits with Alba and Esteban sitting with Clara's journals and and telling their family story as this way of of healing and seeking redemption and and connection. So I think the the documentary thematically connects, uh, but you will also get to hear from Isabel Allende and hear some of her thoughts on on writing if you watch that. I was really close to recommending The Bone Setters. Oh, yeah. That would be a great pairing. Yeah. Bonus pairing. (laughs) Toss that in as a bonus. Isabel Allende is incredibly, there is such a huge collection of interviews with her. She's very open about the writing life. She's very much an open book about her love life, about her family. And so it is really fun to sort of take a deep dive into some of the archives with her. There is an article, an interview, um, sort of a profile that was done pretty recently, just a few months ago. Um, because she had a new book coming out, but it's basically about her, like, she's just talking about how she got divorced in her seventies and everyone thought she was nuts because they were like, aren't you scared that you're going to be alone? And don't you think that, you know, you don't, you're not going to get another shot at romance in your seventies. And so that's not all that the article is about. It talks a little bit about her family and the way she interacts with her grandkids and just there's a lot in there but the 
basic like jumping off point is is about her experience getting divorced in her 70s because she wasn't happy and she's I think she's been married three times like she's just she's really open about all of it um so I will make sure to include a link to that article in the show notes but don't stop there. If you're interested in Isabel Allende, look up some other interviews because, like I said, she is very open and shares a lot about her experiences. That's a great recommendation. Yeah, she's she's um, she's a fascinating character, and there are yeah there are a lot of great articles and video interviews, and it's it's really fun to hear her speak about her writing as well. So. That is a great rabbit hole to go down after you're done listening to this episode and and reading this book. And of course, if you want to talk more about Isabel Allende and the House of the Spirits, we would love for you to join our Patreon community where we're talking about the House of the Spirits as our book club book on a virtual Zoom call, but also chatting about it on our Discord thread all month long sharing bonus pairings with each other, and just really diving even deeper into this book. So you can find that at patreon.com slash novel pairings. You can also be the first to know about our Instagram live schedules, new Patreon content, and more in our weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that at novelpairings.substack.com. And of course, both of those links will be in our show notes. We cannot wait to hear all of your experiences reading The House of the Spirits, your pairing recommendations, and just your personal opinions on the book. So if you have a review to share, be sure to tag us. We are on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod, and we love to see when you are picking up the books that we mentioned on the show, whether it's a classic or a pairing. So follow us at Novel Pairings Pod and take us in your stories and your posts. And we would love it if you keep spreading the word about the Novel Pairings Podcast. So posting those things on social media is super helpful and tagging us, but do not underestimate the power of a review on Apple Podcasts. Those really do make a difference in our rankings of the show and finding new listenership. So if you haven't yet, please go and write a review on Apple Podcasts for us. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with an episode on sweeping family novels. Until then. We declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.